Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you've tuned in to this edition of Hypnosis Week Live. It's me again, Alex William Smith by birth, but known better to many of you as Jonathan Royal, the British bad boy of hypnosis, and I'm delighted to have another amazing guest with me this week. Now, you, as always, will find below this video, or if you're listening to the audio podcast on iTunes or some other platform, it will be below where the listen to the podcast is. You will find the social media links and the website link and all the contact details for my guest this week. The gentleman I'm about to introduce you to, he has a book out that you can go and find on Amazon and all the other major booksellers called Stop Smoking, It's a Doddle, and we'll be talking about that very shortly. He is uh, a fully, tra I don't know how to say this because you know, you know viewers and listeners from the past that I have various different takes on things, but his own website declares the fact that he is um, a member of the British Society of Clinical Hypnosis, and um, which sounds all very posh. We'll go into that as well later. Please welcome to the show, Daniel McDermott. Hi, thank you for introducing me. And yes, when it comes to titles, I'm not too precious about them either, so don't worry too much about that. <laughs> Excellent. Now, look, Daniel, there's, um, I, I know a bit about your background, and I've been fortunate enough to meet you in person. Um, a lot of our viewers and listeners may not have come across you before. Uh, this might be their first opportunity to learn a bit more about you before they go off to Amazon and get a copy of your book or contact you for other things. So... Can you start off, as I always ask everyone, to explain to us what led you on this journey? Because there was a time when you weren't a hypnotherapist. What what, what was your backstory? Oh, gosh. It's like the origin story. I was on a podcast before, and it's like superhero story, origin story. Uh, no, basically, uh, it's not the type of thing you fall into as such, but I did fall into it a little bit. But I was interested in psychology. So mm -hmm. when I was at college... Uh, I took psychology and I was really interested in the subject and that's when I actually recognised I wasn't a complete dimwit and I could actually learn academically. So I then went on to university, did psychology at uni, really enjoyed doing it. And when I was at that, I knew that I wasn't going to be working one-on-one -on -one with people. It was lots of tests, being you know, lots of clinical work there. And I wanted to work one on one. I actually got into hypnotherapy, and this is why I actually like your stuff because I got to, into it to demystify the subject bizarrely. I was actually looking at it from that standoff. I, at the time, I still had a really bad stammer when I first got in, so I never thought that I'd be able to practice it as a practitioner, even at that stage when I first started with the London College of Clinical Hypnosis. So I got myself suited and booted went for my interview and mm -hmm. realised how informal it actually was when I got to the interview and I saw the people just with their tracky bottoms on for their course and I thought, oh gosh, this isn't quite as uh, formal as I, I was taking it more seriously than I needed to at the time. Um, got onto the London College of Clinical Hypnosis course, absolutely loved doing it, learnt a lot. It's a different firm now, I think, if they've got new... Uh, new principal and they've actually changed your name, I think. So I don't think they've got the same teachers. Oh, Michael Joseph sold it, has he? He died. Oh, he died? Yeah, Michael I'm Joseph. I'm not having a finger on the bus. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, 
Yeah, so uh, uh, there was Peter Mabot. I'm not sure if he's still there. I think he's actually uh, left just in recent months, actually, to do mm. his own thing. But he took over with uh, Faisal. So they became the principals, but they changed it to uh, uh, London College of Clinical Hypnosis International. So they actually changed the name slightly. Anyway, I don't know, because I trained in 2007. So, you know, it's 13, 14 years ago now. So Michael was there then? Michael was there. Yeah. He was there at that point. And from what I heard, I actually never met the man in person, but a nice bloke, apparently. Uh, I mean, he was a nice bloke. Perhaps he must have decided to semi-retire by then, because he used to be very hands-on. Yeah. Anyhow, I carried on, really enjoyed it, so I trained up in Leeds. It was just around the corner from my house, so it was very easy for me to get there, uh, being very young, because I started when I was extremely young. Certainly now I look at it just like yourself, that I, I cringe at the photographs and go, oh my gosh, how could anybody ever take me that seriously when I first started? Mm. did all the training that I needed to do. I felt comfortable with the skills that I'd uh, acquired up until that point, and I decided to open up in Leeds City Centre in 2009 or 10. Yeah, beginning of 2010. So I started off, and it's been a decade of me working full time as a hypnotherapist. So when you say on my website, I like to put professional hypnotherapist, and it depends on the semantics of words, as opposed to fully trained. There can be all these debates. About. Yeah, so, indeed. I don't get too fussy about it, but, you know, when it comes to certificates, I don't list all my grades and everything that I've trained in. It's not on. The public don't need to know. As long as you get results. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. Now, what, before you actually started seeing clients, what, well, I'm just sort trying to gently tease it out of you i know you've got if i remember correctly and if i don't tell me sometimes i get it wrong but you've been involved with boxing yeah yeah so i boxed um as an amateur from the age of 11 um absolutely you know i've been very very fortunate in my life i've had some brilliant people in my life lots of idiots as well but some great people in my life. So my old trainer, Harry Pinkney, Kevin Cunningham, Dennis McCann. And they ran the boxing gym for free as an amateur in Meanwood. And they did it, they've done it for decades. So young lads off the estates, they go there, they train for free. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was in the working men's club in the basement. And absolute brilliant man was Harry. And it was he actually died at the end of last year, and I did his eulogy. Uh, so re- really nice blog. After I, when I was actually doing my hypnotherapy at the beginning of the training, that's when I turned professional. Uh, I had a few professional bouts with Derek Roach. Derek Roach was a great champion, and it's quite amusing actually. Derek uh, fought three world title fights, and on that photograph where I met you, and it goes, recognising people. You, you come under Derek Roach on his profile on my telephone. It recognises you with the bald head. <laughs> so, 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 so you can, so you look like a seasoned professional boxer, apparently. I'm definitely not. That's for sure. Yeah. So I, I had a few fights, and 
I'm not sure if it's fortunate or unfortunate. Derek, nobody could ever, ever uh, predict what was going to happen. So I got in the boxing ring and I was called up one morning on a Saturday morning. Donald, you want to fight this young fella? He's up and coming. He's a good lad. Your debut, his debut. You want to take it on his opponents pulled out? I know. I was ready to go. I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So we drove to Blackpool Tower and I went six rounds, went the distance with this young lad called Terry Flanagan. He was hard as nails. And I knew, well, is this what the professional game's about? They're a bit, they're a bit hard, these fellas. <laughs> anyway, he gave me a bit of a boxing lesson, but, you know, I fought hard and got my earnings that day. He went on to become a like the lightweight world champion undefeated, so he was a bit special, a bit special. And he moved up to super lightweight just to, just last year. He lost against one of the best pound-for-pound boxers in the world, that's it. So he's only lost two bouts against two of the best people in a higher weight, so he's come back down to lightweight. So well, you, you held your own during that, from what I you just tried, said. I tried, I tried. makes you a bit special as well, doesn't it, Charlie? Because... <laughs> There's, 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 there are levels to the sport, and you know, I could get in there. Second bout came across, <laughs> and again, uh, anybody in the boxing world will know this fella. So they put me against a fella called Josh Warrington, who is the current world featherweight champion, undefeated, 35 at the moment. Yeah, I held my own against Josh, and I had a good bout against him. He, he was just at that level. So I actually wanted to continue when I felt frustrated throughout the fight because I just couldn't catch him. Um, in hindsight, he had an engine like anything. So had it continued, he would eventually put a stop to it, I imagine. But back then, I was a bit frustrated. And it's only, as you see, in progress. So I thought, when I fought these fellas, they were novices mm-hmm. in the spot. I wasn't fighting them at their, what they've become. And I recognise that. So I can't be good who I fought the world champion I fought well you can because you you, you were the, you were they were at a different level then but if you'd have continued you'd have become at a different level than you were at the time as well of, of, of course I reckon I do recognize that but you know it's good bragging rights but I've also got <laughs> to be a bit modest about it because I recognize the difference the difference in it and mm. you know where, where, I, where we were all at the time anyway I had my third profile got my victory finally and then I got this condition uh, called osteochondroma, which is bone growth to the bones. And it's a type of tumour, benign, I must add that, okay? Right. But I was, um, I was quite poorly with it. And um, I kept on get, getting all this pain in my joints. And then uh, I, went, I went to the doctor saying there's something up with me. You know, I get punched in the face for a living. So it's, I'm not hypochondriac here. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. And they put me under the uh, under the knife a couple of weeks later to uh, get these uh, growths out of me. They kept on coming back with a vengeance. Um, obviously, to be fighting at that level, you've got to be able to train properly. I just couldn't train properly. So every time I got back into it, get myself mm-hmm. fit, this pain would just come back with a vengeance. Um, I decided at that point, to uh, just have a bit of time off, and I thought, oh, I'll get back into it. And as things went on, because I was, I had opened up my business at this point, things had moved on. I was married now. Well, my son was born. And I recognised, hang on. 
you've got to have something to lose in that sport. And suddenly I had quite a lot to lose and my mind wasn't in the right. You, you, we are about mindset in what we do. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous game to be doing it half-heartedly. You can't do it half-heartedly. You've got to take it seriously. Am I at that elite level to really make it? I knew that I was good. I could become a British champion. I could make a bit of money, potentially, maybe get to European standard. But it might pay for my house. But then what do I do thereafter? And I had a bit of conflict. I still have that conflict because I'm 33 now. You know, you get the uh, you get the urge to do these things. You know, hit a bag for three rounds, six rounds, and you go, oh, have I still got it in me? Then, then if you spar some of the young lads or whatever you're in, too many grey hairs and you realise I've slowed down too much. Well, what about the mindset thing? Because obviously, over the years, getting experience with doing hypnotherapy and that, yeah. you, 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 you could apply some of those skills into the sports arena. Yeah, I do, and I've helped other, other boxers with that. I've got the mindset, once you're in there, you can go for it. But, you, but there is that sort of like... You know, when we talk about law with traps and type things, you know, I I trust in it, but I don't believe in it, this whole universal force, you know, mm-hmm. probably in the same way, you know, when you look at placebo, when you talk about it. So I've got the same experience. I know that I have it within me. If I put everything into it, am I willing to put everything into it? You've got to make that choice. And now, you know, eventually you go, it's not for me. I, I've got a different purpose here that I'm doing. And I, I do recognise I was getting results with clients doing everything so do I drop what I now think is my cheesy calling in life you know and you have certain callings the boxing was there for a reason almost that like pushed me in that direction to give me a certain mindset so I could help other people potentially I do see it as cheesy as it sounds like that do I think it's a supernatural uh, thing no but you know I definitely had experience from my past through the boxing through the discipline. It's what I say about my old trainers. They are the original hypnotists. They program my mind to be a certain way. And yeah, at that age, I thought I was going to be a champion. Now I realise I can help other people really get into the correct mindset that they need to be in life. So many people are lacking confidence. So many people suffer mental illness. You know, and they really need help. Really need So, I mean... I know you deal with all manner of uh, basically, you know, what clients could throw at you. But in particular, we'll, we'll generalise in a minute. But um, as I said right at the top, you do have, if people go to Amazon or follow the link below this video or audio podcast, uh, you've got your book out, Stop Smoking, It's a Doddle. That, that came out five years ago. And like anything, you know, I did a second edition, but that's just on uh, on Kindle now, that one. Um you change things around a little bit. So it's not the perfect product, in my opinion, but it's it's still helping people and it has helped people stop smoking. The reason why I wrote Stop Smoking, Sir Doddle, is because I looked at hypnotherapists and I recognised why are hypnotherapists really, really struggling with stopping people smoking? Lots of them avoid it. They don't touch it. Then you get others that specialise in it. And I thought, well, if I can do that well, other conditions will be easier. And I realised most conditions have the same fundamentals within it, you know. If people are just anxious, basically, it all comes down to anxiety and confidence with most conditions. Mm-hmm. And they have a phobia of quitting. 
people have a phobia of their condition most of the time. And what you say, you're like helping them let go of shame, guilt. Uh, I've forgotten the other ones that you go. Lame, with. shame, guilt, and regret. And all this. So you basically can do all this with them within the, within the treatment. So I just, I, I love seeing somebody quit smoking, you know, instantaneously they can go home. And I, you know, at the end of the session, what are you going to say when somebody asks you, how did you say, I am a non-smoker. So they just basically re-diagnose themselves as a non-smoker, let go of all the guilt, let go of all the shame, let go of that identity as a smoker, they are now a non-smoker. I suddenly realise how people can shift so quickly and easily. And I became a bit obsessed with psychology, you know, when I was teen, you know, 18, 19, 20. I'm not going to go into too many of uh, the psychological challenges that I did have, you know, I was stammering and other things. Um, How did you go? I've got to ask you, because people are bound, bound to be interested as uh, largely therapists themselves. Was it through hypnotherapy that you overcame that? So when I was at uni, you know, I'd go out sometimes, I'd have a few too many beers, and I realized I'm drinking because this must be a bit of a social anxiety. And I recognized that I came back on at uni more so. So when I was at school, I had a bit of a stammer. Certain mm-hmm. people I talked to, it'd get really bad. And then other people that I knew very well, it wouldn't be as bad. So I realized it must be a social anxiety thing. Basically, people are the stammer, or what I was saying, people are phobic. People are phobic of their condition. I was phobic of stammering, you know, okay. anxiety about stammering. And the majority of stammerings, even if there is something biological there, so there, there are a lot of, uh, there are lots of conditions that are both psychosomatic and biological. Mm-hmm. And they can be a mixture. Who am I to say, I'm not the medical doctor. I go, well, if it is psychosomatic, then I can help you. So I've got video testimonials of people that have stammers speaking clearly on their video testimony. I came to see Daniel after the third session. I went out, went back to the office, and I was talking to people. See, the people that have had stammers, you know, they're stammered throughout their lives from the age of, since they were a child, all the way up to 55, you know. And suddenly, they've got it. They suddenly realise that it's all been social anxiety of a phobia of their stammer. So I make him a confident stammerer. That's what I say. I'm still a stammerer, but I'm a confident stammerer. Therefore, I don't stammer. Okay. Um, Who says I'm not allowed to stammer? Well, everybody does at some point. Yeah, exactly. People, or they might not refer to it as stammering, a trip upon their words in certain situations. I'm not shamed by stammering, so therefore I don't. If I do, so what? And that's what I do basically. People overcomplicate psychotherapy a lot of the time. They really overcomplicate it, you know, and they can be very precious about things. All we need to do is make sure that people feel confident in themselves and their conditions. So when I talk about confidence, I ask people, what do you think confidence is? And I use a few examples. I do use my stammer as an example. I go, I'm a confident stammerer. So people come to me and go, Dan, can you cure am I blushing? I will say, why are you not allowed to blush? Which seems a bit contradictory because I dare to stop blushing. I go, I'm allowed to blush. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I'll help you become a confident blusher so we can go out and blush together. Therefore, they don't blush. Confidence is self-acceptance. And I do tell people, you know, just because you're accepting something doesn't mean you're entirely happy about it. And if you can change it, you'll work to change it. But things, some things in life you can't change. But some, lots of things you can. So 
you know, you can't tell I'm coming, but I'm five foot six, not a huge one, but I'm a confident short ass. If somebody came in with a magic wand and said, oh, Daniel, we can make you six foot, I'd go, yeah, can I try it for a week, please? But in the meantime, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to be ridiculed by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You take ownership of what you are. But there are some things that you can change. So I use this as an example a lot of the time. I could completely play the piano badly in front of millions of people. I don't have the efficacy that I can play it well, however. But if it was important, then I'd work incredibly hard to build my efficacy. Playing the piano isn't my thing, so I don't bother. But everything's important to all of us and must try to excel in what's mm-hmm. important to us. Not a practitioner or hypnotherapy, I strive to be the best I can at it. You know, and I work incredibly hard to get results with fun. That's all we have to do is actually. So even when our pride's not, that's okay. That's okay. And what you say, you're letting go of shame. That's all it's about. Excellent insight. But let's just pop back to smoking for a second. Oh, I, 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 I went on is, a. Is it habit or addiction? That's the age-old debate, smoking. Right, semantics of, the word, semantics of the word addiction, okay? First of all, is it a mental addiction or physical addiction? Right, when it comes to nicotine, this is what I, I state. I've got video testimonials of clients that have smoked 80 cigarettes a day, and they're in their 60s at this point, from the age of 20 to the age of 60. And they've walked away with immediate effects with no craving. This is how I phrase it to people. Let's imagine. The whole world has been hypnotized into believing that they are addicted to smoking. There's lots of literature out there, out there, lots of media out there. Even ex-smokers go, ooh, it was the hardest thing I ever did. So that mindset's in the human condition now, throughout society. I love the NHS, especially what they've been doing in recent years, okay? I absolutely love them. But they get it incredibly wrong when it comes to mental health, in my opinion. My mm. opinion. Yeah. And they get it CBT is the largest part of what they do, isn't it? And uh, that's complete bullshit therapy is what I say it stands for. I, I, I use a form... I use lots of Albert Ellis's work, which is a form of REBCT, you know, and other things. So it's good to be rehearsed, in it? But it's... I wouldn't ever work at work as an NHS practitioner does. So we, we, I do believe in any, you can learn a lot from any type of therapy, but you take the bits that are working, you, mm. you ignore the bits that don't. So in any type of thing, in CBT, there are some fundamentals within it, which you go, yeah, actually that makes sense, that works. So I'm not completely against any type of practitioner. Because some, for some people, they get results with it. But for lots, as you know, it doesn't. And I do think it depends on the practitioner as well. Well, yeah, very largely so. Um, I think with anything, if if, if some if a practitioner's got the right approach and people actually like them, that's a large part of the work done, isn't it? So. Right. With, with the NHS, anyhow, they get incredibly wrong when it comes to weight loss and they get it incredibly wrong when it comes to smoking cessation, in my opinion. Because they offer nicotine replacement therapy, which suggests it's primarily a physical addiction as opposed to a psychosomatic condition. So let's look at the science of it, really. If people were exclusively addicted to nicotine, as they suggest, nicotine replacement therapy would boast a 100% success rate. The person is getting the drug that their bodies are dependent on. From the literature that I read, it's got, I believe, under 5% success rate. 
which isn't very good. If people were exclusively addicted to nicotine, as they suggest, not one person on the entire planet ever in existence would have stopped smoking using hypnosis, because we cannot trick people into thinking not physically addicted to a drug that the bodies are dependent on. It just wouldn't work. Yet every single person that I've worked with who truly desires to become a health non-smoker walks away as a non-smoker with immediate effect. It just wouldn't work. Um, you've just said you can't trick people into thinking... Uh, what? Say it again. They're not biologically, physically addicted to a drug that their bodies are dependent on. I disagree, you can. Uh, Delavar in wartime, when they came back and they'd all been given drugs on the on the um, battlefield. Doesn't that show that it's more psychosomatic addiction? It was phys- It was the physical withdrawal he was dealing. With. He just bought the back, but he convinced them that they weren't. Right. But this this is the thing. Man, so, in fairness, he bought them out of it for a week. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna explain why people do feel these physical what they believe are cravings physical. Mm-hmm. Cravings. So, so, so just moving on from it, because pe- people get confused when you say something psychosomatic. It doesn't mean that there isn't a physical thing going on. So somebody might have eczema on their arm. The eczema's real. They can see it. It's itchy. And when you say, oh, it's created by your mind, they go, well, no, it's real. It's not being offensive when you say something psychosomatic. The brain is so powerful that's actually created something physical. So when people feel physical cravings, the physical cravings are real. Is it the nicotine or is it a mindset? Is it psychosomatic? And I believe a lot of addiction is psychosomatic. And no, yes, I couldn't agree with not, you more. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying it's completely psychosomatic. Yeah, there might be an addiction there, and there is, but it's not quite as powerful as people think. Otherwise, hypnosis that man wouldn't have been able that you just said wouldn't have been able to stop these people some people wake up in the morning and they're usually trying to quit on their own accord no help whatsoever they wake up and they're okay today i'm going to try and stop smoking i mustn't think about smoking stop thinking about it. stop it stop it stop it. oh my gosh why am i thinking about smoking ah nicotine job no they have a phobia of the thought of smoking when they're trying to quit smoking very simple they have a phobia of the thought and because they have that phobia, they start becoming overexcited by that thought. So or I change from that into overexcitement. I mustn't be feeling this way. Stop thinking about stop it, stop it, stop it. I just can't bear this anymore. So what do they eventually do? They smoke. So I change it to a preference in this way. CB, a bit CBT comes in, you know, you take the bits out, you like, okay, they wake up one morning. I mustn't be thinking about it. If they were truly physically addicted, they would have woken up at three, four o'clock in the morning. They haven't. In fact, you frequently hear people go, oh, I've had a cigarette, cigarette, six hours completely took my mind, really busy today. If somebody who's physically addicted, that does not happen, they would have those cravings to go out. I was never playing for 12 hours. Mm. They haven't had those cravings on the plane. But as soon as they get off the sparkle, they're, they're either in a habitual situation where they haven't or they see somebody else sparkle, I don't care, stop it, stop it, stop it. What do they usually do? They have the cigarette. And I know it's not medically an OCD, but that thought, the demand that they mustn't have that thought, that thought now becomes an obsession. And they believe the, the superstitious ritual of sticking a load of dried leaves in their mouth and burning them mm-hmm. will get rid of that obsession, which becomes a compulsion, which is a disorder. That's all smoking is. It's built all built on superstition. Gets rid of the thought of smoking. Pink elephant. 
don't think of a pink elephant, you think of one. So, through the hypnosis, I give them permission. You're allowed to think about smoking. They're not confident with the thought. The more they think about it, I go, well, should I wake up more? Oh, should they not smoke? But I'm allowed to. But I prefer mm-hmm. not to. Why do I prefer not to? The more I think about it, the more I prefer not to smoke. I get them to embrace the thought. They're now confident with the thought. The more I think about it, the more I prefer not to smoke. It stinks. But it's literally and figuratively in every single way. And I get them to hate it. So they now feel, because I've given them a new identity, that they are now a non-smoker. So non-smokers don't have a phobia of smoking. They don't have a phobia of thought. So now that they're a non-smoker, when they're, whenever they think about it, why would I bloody want to stick a lot of dragglers in my mouth and burn it? idiotic isn't it so you get them to have a completely different perspective of it and it's same with other drugs as well and you know we've got to tread carefully when we talk about addictions because you know there are studies that are conducted that say you know this is the amount of drugs that a person needs so when people come off hard hard drugs we've got to be a bit careful when people talk about alcohol alcohol um, there are people that I see I've just helped a man who was drinking up to 20 pints every evening Okay, he was an NHS paramedic and he had PTSD really bad right. couldn't sit down I've got a fantastic a fantastic written testimony I was going to do me another testimony a video testimony at some point lovely bloke but for four years he's been, he couldn't sit down he was at his, in his home, couldn't leave his room, he was pacing up and down, pacing up and down, and he'd drink 20 pints. And he went from about 11 stone to 21 stone. Okay. He put on a lot of weight. And yeah. he has kids, his wife's also a paramedic. Actually, she's an ambulance worker, it's a different word, but you know, she works on the ambulances as well. Um, so he had to actually take early retirement eventually for ill health and the rest of it. So you'd seen all these other practitioners, the system has let him down instantly. And his wife was very, very anxious. I'm allowed to talk about this because it's all on the record now. I'm not actually yeah. speaking to you, breaking privacy and confidentiality. And he, she came down to see me and he came to support her just when she was really getting overwhelmed with everything. I said, I'm going to sort you both out today. After that first session, all panic disappeared. That was it. His PTSD was gone after a conversation. Because I believe everything is a form of hypnosis. Mm -hmm. It's just chatting with people, shifting people's beliefs. It's not about eye closure. It's not about meditation. But yes, that is another tool. So meditation, you can use that to reinforce. So I use that at the end of the session, the meditation. But it was me chatting with him and understanding his condition and explaining it to him because I believe knowledge is power. Once you understand your condition, you can overcome it. So when you just demystify anything, and I know that you were different from me, I think we we have the same beliefs in the end, placebo and everything else. Okay, mm-hmm. you say you shouldn't you shouldn't take the magic away. Well, I actually do take the magic away, but I do it in such a manner that they have intellectual insight. They now are in control. They recognise all these the tricks of the mind, the magic. They understand the magic of the world around them, everything that is hypnotising. So they recognise that they've been hypnotised into their condition. And my job is to unhypnotise them and explain exactly how they've been hypnotised into their condition. 
but they're now they're empowered by that understanding. Why that's important for this all these years. So this man, he was classed as an alcoholic. He was classed as an alcoholic. But he was only drinking from 6 p.m. So all day he was fine. So you weren't shaking that you'd been classed as an alcoholic. Yeah, then, I've always found that one a bit odd. Alcoholic to me actually mean means the kind of person who is waking up during the night, reaching under the bed and having a swig of whiskey. So many people are diagnosed that. So I, I've got, again, you, you've got to tread carefully and go, that I get in touch with the doctors and go, I'm going to be using X, Y, Z. Are you okay with this? Obviously, not doing anything unethical and saying, well, what, how, what do you describe as an alcoholic? But lots of people who come and see me, the problem is when once you have that stigma, I am an alcoholic, they might be fine, they might be doing well, and then they get tempted, and that guilt comes back in because they've had a touch of our, that's it, I've messed up my whole life's room, I might as well go for it now, I might as well just continue with this because I have failed. If somebody isn't diagnosed as an alcoholic and they have half a pint, yeah, they're not phobic of having that half a pint, so they don't need to continue now because they think that they've wrecked their lives. Yeah, they've not been branded, they've not been labelled. As soon as somebody has that label, it's very, very difficult. Um, it's, a, it's a really tricky one because obviously we need to, people need to have diagnosis because that can free them having the diagnosis on something, okay, you've got this problem, and therefore they can get the appropriate help. But the problem is if they get a diagnosis, that then grounds them, that's just and it pigeonholes them as well. Some people it helps, other people it's the worst thing on the planet getting a diagnosis. Yeah. With that label, they become the problem. Um, so when we, again, we can get heated with semantics in therapy all the time. You know? So when I talk about addiction and I go, well, is the person biologically addicted? I'm not saying that there isn't any biological addiction, but obviously people do get confused with psychosomatic addiction. And when something is psychosomatic, it has a biological reaction and they confuse that for the actual physical addiction. Mm-hmm. They need something. I've been there when I, you know, I get a little psychosomatic sometimes cravings for food and the best one. I don't need it. I don't need it. But my, my brain cells will talk about that. And you feel it. You feel something physical. Good. And then you laugh at yourself. Yeah. Um, there we go. <laughs> no, I, 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 I like, like the way you're explaining it. It's, um, yeah, that thought, the difference between physical addiction and it being psychological. I mean, without my definition of alcoholism, someone who wakes up during the night and even has a swig of whiskey, for example, and that's happening throughout the night. That's there's some level of arguably physical addiction there, or at least a medical GP would say there is, and that it is dangerous in those circumstances to just immediately start. I know, and that's always a challenge. So even with this gentleman, I got him. So he came back to see me after we got rid of the anxiety. He came back and we had a few sessions. We go, let's just decrease it in a safe manner. The thing is, he was a paramedic as well, so he understands the science. Well, yeah. So, mm. so I would go, right, you're smarter than I am when it comes to the biology of this. But let's think, let's decrease it bit by bit. Let's do it safely. Just like if somebody's coming off any medication, you 
don't go cold turkey, let's do it appropriately. He did it appropriately, so he came down. And now he has a glass of wine with his Sunday lunch. It's fine. A beer with his Sunday dinner. It's fine doing that. And yeah. There are people that I've worked with, though, as well, that have been diagnosed that are drinking through the night. And I've had similar. Obviously, I can't talk about, you know, I don't want to break privacy. Obviously. Yeah. So, but they've come off in the same way. So it is that, oh, wow, they've gone, had half a pint with their friends. They're okay doing that even though that they had been diagnosed with an alcoholic in the past, because their alcoholism was a symptom. It's a symptom of depression. They're down and dumb. Some people with depression, they just cannot get out of bed. They're just hiding away. So it's just, you know, you hear many practitioners that say the problem isn't the problem. And it isn't a lot of the time. The alcohol isn't the actual problem. The problem is depression. Their lives, this, that is just a way of them. Yeah, well, depression obviously is one label, or it could just be, well, it can be, can I totally agree with you with this entirely? That, you know, drinking isn't the problem, smoking isn't the problem, eating too much isn't the problem. It's either depression or some sort of stress related thing, anxiety, worry, fear, like you touched on before or fundamentally some element of imbalance or lacking in their self-worth or self-esteem or wanting a need for something that's getting replaced by the old cheesy saying, someone who's drinking's drowning the problem, someone who's smoking's creating a smoke screen, drugs is an escapism. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. Their the unconscious thinks that's the solution to all life's problems in that moment. Believe that. So when you actually recognise them, so I, I use very, you know, I use different analogies, different uh, metaphors when working with people. When you look at the inner child, you look at the um, the friend, the party. You know, it's got so many labels that you can throw at, and depending on the person who's in front of you. So if I've got a woman who's, let's say, let's say she's forty years old for illustrative purposes, and she's got a ten-year-old son. We'll call him Timmy, shall we? Uh, she's been working a 60-hour week that week. She walks home, walks through the front door on a Friday evening, absolutely knackered from work. And she'd stopped smoking three months before, and she's left the cigarettes in the uh, bedside table. And little Timmy's found them, so he runs out to mummy. Mummy, mummy, you look so tired, mummy. I know what I have been here with you, mummy. Better, isn't it? Isn't that nice? Little Timmy's trying to help his mummy take away all life's problems through smoking cigarettes. There's three ways to uh, handle this. The first is to you know, get to your room <laughs> on the backside. You know, probably go upstairs and smoke, start smoking himself, so he rebels. The second is to go, oh, cheers, Timmy. Brilliant idea. <laughs> Join him. Not advised. The third is to go, thank you, Timmy. So you're thanking that unconscious part of you. Thank you, Timmy. That's so nice of you. Recognise that mum is very, very tired. So let's sit down together, Timmy. First of all, it's so sweet that you try to help mummy. But smoking is so bad for X, Y, Z reasons. I know. When mummy comes in next time, let's go into the kitchen. We can put the kettle on, make hot chocolate, do something a bit different. It's so nice of you trying to look after him. The unconscious mind, that's all the unconscious mind. It's a child. It, doesn't understand the world around it. 
it's trying to help the person but going about it the wrong way. But I use this uh, phrase, all badness is a corruption of good. But it sounds very cheesy. Why do people behave badly in life? Because they're trying to gain something positive, either materialistically, emotionally, or physically for themselves in that moment. They're going about it completely the wrong way. Every single action a person makes is because they're trying to get something positive. Or what their perception of positive is. Exactly. Exactly. They try to make themselves feel better in some sense. Mm. Some manner. All badness is a corruption of good. And you've got to thank that part that's trying to get something good. The, the unconscious is thick. That's what I teach my clients. So why do you think, given, I mean, I, I suspect, I know what you'll say to this, but what, what, why do you think when provably, despite the fact, you know, I mean, from my point of view, I agree, hypnosis doesn't exist in the way people normally talk about it. But by the by, the fact is, it doesn't matter what it is or what it isn't, it works. Right. Um, results are what matter. So the fact that results are obtained... And people are helped consistently and regularly with what gets termed as hypnosis or yeah. whatever other name it's given. Why do you think it's not used more, m- more widespreadly in, I'm going to go conventional medical circles, who will instead, there you go, have some antidepressants rather than working on your state of mind? My, my my opinion on why it's not widely used in the medical world is that I don't believe that the industry should be regulated because that would take away all manners of working. You know, if you if you make it too rigid, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. And therefore, there are people that are incompetent within the industry, so they give it a bad name. Uh, there's lots of good practitioners out there. There's lots of bad because it's unregulated. But the people who are good are good because it's unregulated. <laughs> mm. So the bad people are there, given a bad name, because it is unregulated as well. So it's a bit of a paradox. How do you overcome this problem? People have different levels of training. People work very differently. So I work incredibly differently from my peers. Really differently. I chat two and a half hours with a client before I do any transfer work and explain this model. It's what I call, it's not conversational hypnosis in the same phrase, it's emotional coaching. So I'm yeah, I say that's more under the psychotherapy yeah. counselling banner. I, 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 class, it, I, class, I yeah. still classes it as hypnosis, you see. You well, know, it is, because arguably all communication is, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. so it's semantics of the word hypnosis. Mm. So, so when people say, oh, I'm off to see the hypnotist, what I say, I'm unhypnotising them. I'm the unhypnotist, basically, because the world themselves is hypnotising themselves into the condition. So, yeah, so why, why is it not used, is the question, basically because it's such a wide variety of what people think hypnotists therapy actually so you've got law of attraction type hypnotherapists you've got holistic uh crystal healing type of hypnotherapists you've got your regression spiritual healing type of hypnotherapists you've got your uh twerps like myself who you know a bit more pompous with their approach (laughs) type hypnotherapists that try and make it more academic you've got the more uh people like yourselves that will use 
placebo, a bit of mystical within it, but knowing that it doesn't exist type of hypnotherapist as well, where you go, yeah, I will use the placebo to make this person better. That's fantastic. Lots of practitioners don't get results. So there are some who get excel. They're getting results with almost everybody. And you're getting some that just cannot get results. And they come in, they, they go through the sausage factories of training. That's an ideal segue to something I was going to ask you about. So it's wonderful. It, so I'm just picking them up. Do you think, well, I'll just start, regarding why it's not more commonplace, I think a large part also is because there's not as much money in curing people or empowering them to be themselves as there is keep prescribing drugs. Um, yeah, I'm not, you know, it's, it's difficult to get into the debate of pharmaceuticals and the rest of it. We know literature out there proves that pharmaceuticals have been very, very unethical in the past when it comes to medication. Um, there are GPs, doctors out there that don't know how to treat a person. They're allowed to diagnose a person, but they don't know how to treat it. They're the smartest at them. The first course of action. Oh my gosh, this person is poorly. What do I do? I've got to make up as if I'm help, helping them. How do I do that? I go down that biological route. That's, that's what they've been taught to do. So I, I treat psychiatrists. I treat medical doctors in my clinic. And they go away and they come out with a completely different perspective of what they've been doing for 20 years. And they're just wild by it. Why have I been helping people? Because, as I say to them, you are hypnotist. Every single conversation you have with a patient is a form of hypnosis. And you can really cause damage to people because you are the authority. You yeah. are the authority. So when it comes to pharmaceuticals, yeah, it's, you know, do I, are they paying? Yeah, they used to give stationery to doctors. They used to give everything to them because they were on the pay box. Yeah, but can the world change? Can it change? Well, we're hoping so. People are becoming more aware of it. And people like yourself with your program as well that you created. People are becoming more aware of it. And there's that balance of, about medicine. You know, the fact is we need medicine. We need help. You know, um, the pharmaceutical companies do a fantastic job at times when people really need something. When it comes to psych psychiatry and mental men medicine, I'm talking as a layman here, by the way, just so you know. Mm. It's really, it's a, it's a really, really complicated situation because there are people that need medication. When people are psychotic, they need that medication. It helps them. Then when it comes to somebody having a bad day, or they, they're grieving, and that's classed as a biological condition because they're grieving, do they need medication? No. Probably not. They need, they need support and help. They need solutions. They need tools. And hypnotherapy and other types of therapists help them gather that, them tools that they need. So it shouldn't be the first course of action medication all the time it is a lot of the time depending on the medical practitioner somebody goes and people can be very very lucky depending on their doctor cool so the other thing which tags on 
to what you were saying before about there's a lot of crap practitioners out there. Partly that can be due to the training that they've done because they, 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 they may not have had adequate training. Uh, obviously, there could be the reasoning that they might have had the best training on the planet. Well, really good training, but for whatever reason, they've gone away and they're not doing it right, so to speak. They're, they missed the point or they're not confident enough in the delivery or, or, or whatever. But the actual question is you have got, as people will see when they go looking at the links below this video or audio podcast on your social media platforms, on your website, but regularly I see on Facebook, you have got a hell of a lot of what gets termed social proof. So testimonials from people. This was my issue. This is where I am now. Wow. And, you know, that that short of somebody coming up to you and going, I personally recommend this individual face-to-face, verbal, uh, personal recommendation, seeing somebody who's had a similar issue to you and then it's been overcome and the saying got this person is the, the next best things in terms of credibility and whatnot. Why do you think, because a lot of our viewers and listeners will be hypnotherapists themselves, the vast majority, I would say, of hypnotherapists have very little out there in the way of social proof. Now, it can't because they're all crap, because there's a lot of them that are still, you know, have still been in business struggling along for years, but they don't appear to have that much social proof. Do you think it's they're just scared to ask for it? Sometimes I might be scared to ask for it. Sometimes it's a technology thing. People are a bit uh, averse to technology. In more that you know, it's becoming easier and easier. I've been like that in the past myself because you, you, you've met the gentleman, Steve Miller. Mm. Steve's great, you know. And it, I remember him telling, why don't you get some social proof on you? I was like, well, will people some videos? Because, because, because we discussed this and I go, I go to him, well, why don't you get some social proof? Because I think he was a bit like, uh, are you as good as you say? You know, because everybody claims to be good. But I was like, well, how do I prove this? I go, well, the problem with written testimonials is that that could be fabricated. Why don't you get some videos? I've got to get myself a camera now. So I had to go and invest in a camera. Talk <laughs> in the consulting room for one people. I go, Sorry. It's asking them. And then look at my legalities. But there are some bodies as well, some governing bodies that say it's unethical. So I've had this debate, I've written blogs on this. People say it's unethical to gather video testimonials. I don't think it's unethical if you ask. And they sign a disclaimer going, I no. the fact is, when I've asked people, I'm not putting them on the spot, they come back and do it. So it's not on the spot. I lie. I have had, I have had people when they've got rid of a phobia immediately. So they're holding a spider at the end of the first session. Yeah, because they know it's work when they're there dead calm laughing. Oh, look, somebody, I've got this. Or somebody has a phobia of eating fruit and they're eating the fruit on camera and then it's there. So they're the only ones where they actually are exposed to their phobia at the end of the session that I put. Otherwise, they return. So the smoker returns after three months of being a non-smoker to give cool. a video test. Mm-hmm. You know, because you don't want to do it after a week. You don't want to do it after you know, the first 10 seconds. Well, no, exactly. You want at least a month. So it's provably. Yeah. That's it. uh, yeah. So, so we do that and we make sure that 
that, that the testimonies. But some people are just lacking. So there might be a technology, they're a bit phobic for technology themselves, but they're going to have to get with the times a bit on that occasion. There might be that they're not getting the results or they're not seeing enough people or they're just too scared to ask. I, I don't know because people say to me, how can you get testimonials? And I got lazy with it last year. I built up so many that actually takes time out of your diary doing it as well <laughs> to invite them back. So it's not like inviting people down and you go, well, this is my peak time that they can come down, you know, 4 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon. That's when people want to come and see me. I'm like, oh, do I not take, basically, I need to make a living for my family or do mm. I get my video testimony? So I stopped doing them for ages, asking people. I might get back into the asking people again because I thought I've got enough. Well, no, in fairness, there comes a point where when you've got a whole bloody massive amount of them that you, and you're only putting one up every day or two, you know, it's, you, you've got several months covered. People aren't going to notice that you go back to the beginning again. But, I mean, I look out there and I see... I've, I've, I've been, I've been, I've been uh, in fact, I put a new one on just recently. And the reason is, is it's a video testimonial just because people are a little bit concerned about video call therapies at the moment because we had to do everything over video call yeah so um, i'm getting them again just to prove that it works over video call just to make people more assured well hey cool that makes sense which again it's like almost what i had in my head you've read my mind because you've gone in order and you keep segueing right i was going to bring that up how have you been going on during all this lockdown yeah COVID well, stuff. In, the first, in, in the first couple of weeks, it went. I went from a busy clinic, working really, really well. You know, it's and, and it was a bit like, oh my gosh, I've worked ten years to get to where it is. Yes. And I'm working well, got all these skills, and then suddenly whew, down. I was like, crap, why is this happening? As it happens, you know, people just getting into the routine a bit and start contacting me again. And I, yeah. It's not quite, I'm not working with quite as many people as I was before face-to-face. Some people do want that face-to-face. It doesn't make any difference if they've got a good connection. But some people have kids in the house. They've got family. They don't have the yeah. space, not the connection. So it's a bit more difficult for them. And that, so they go, oh, I can't do it just at this moment. I'm, that's fair. That's always going to be a bit difficult with some people. Uh, but, yeah, I've been doing okay. I've been doing all right with it. And, uh, surprisingly, so I've got with the times, got myself a new microphone stand, got myself a logic camera, uh, so it's attached to the laptop. And uh, it's all a scam, I, this COVID. I, it is. It's all a scam. I'm sure it's. But it, I, put my feather, I, put, I put my feather and scroll away because I, I was very old-fashioned in the way that I worked before. <laughs> it's, I, I'm convinced it's a scam, this COVID. It's not, and I don't mean all this conspiracy nonsense about Bill Gates. They've all clubbed together, haven't they? Zoom uh, and the microphone and webcam companies. There's been more sales of webcams, microphones and subscriptions to Zoom in the past couple of months than they made a bloody fortune out of us. Yeah. Well, they have. What do you think is going to happen going forward? Because now that a lot of people have realised, well, not not enough, I think, but a lot of people have realised that it is possible uh as the therapist to run things online but also as the potential client to get things done online 
how important do you think that's going to be going forward? Because we're still in, we're doing this on the 15th of June 2020. And in England, the shops, generalised shops are just open today, or at least they've got permission to if they want. Uh, but pubs haven't yet. So we're still in that incremental stages to getting back to the normal we knew, if ever we do, because they keep banding around this phrase, new normal. <laughs> what, yeah, propaganda, if ever it was. What do, you, what do you see the future of hypnotherapy being? Do you see it being more online? Because, I mean, for all we know, this could happen again, couldn't it? Right. There are people that niche. And when people niche, it means that they can hit a different target. So when people are searching for them, they're more likely to go with the practitioner that niches, even if it is online. Mm. People are technologically savvy. One thing it has done is allow people to become more technological savvy and less scared of it. So people, you know, even not to be derogatory, the older generation that usually wouldn't use Zoom, you know, they now want oh, it. Yeah, the number of people I know, you think, you what? You, you've been using Zoom? Wow. Yeah. So even my father is being FaceTiming me. And I've been, I've been writing these blogs about him. I thought, right, at the beginning of all of this, I thought, well, it'll be quite funny. Who do I use as a case study <laughs> to explain psychotherapy to people? Let's okay. take the pick out of the most ridiculous person I know. So great guy, lovely. <laughs> but <laughs> but he, he's got some funny stories. So I'll have a chat with him. How can I make that into a funny tale and uh, have, have a moral of a story within it? So I've been writing some daft anecdotes for people yeah going forward yeah i do believe that people will do that people already have been doing that before in the past i think things will be in the initial stages you know health and safety i when i haven't opened up my clinic again i could do i've got people asking when am i gonna uh basically making sure that all regulations are in place nobody can sue you for you know coming in making sure that they're right to sign a disclaimer and that they're safe, that they're not, they're not going to pass anything on to me. Maybe I'm a bit, being a bit over the top. Do, do we wear face masks? Do we not? I've got, I rearranged my office. I've been down three times in the past four months to my office. I've rearranged it so it's got good social distancing within it. Everything's ready. I've got the pump on the wall and hand gel wash. So everything's in place. But... Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, depending on if there's a second wave really on the actual illness and people, you know, it's it's absolutely tragic that people are dying of this. I don't want to be uh, looking at it and just you know going, oh, it's all a conspiracy completely because there are victims to this. I've had clients who have had victims within their family members. Oh yeah, I know. There's definitely and, people. And, 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 is is it is, yeah. is it as dangerous as as they're making out as well? But there are very very vulnerable people, and the people that are vulnerable will have to take care of themselves. Well, in the past week, in the past week of fortnight, they pretty much the World Health Organization and um has basically admitted that asymptomatic people are highly unlikely to pass it on to other people. Whereas previously, everything was coming out saying that it, woo So you've got that. You've got the fact that 
the social distancing malarkey is somewhat farcical because in England we're at two metres, but loads of other places it's one metre. And now UK is looking at one metre. Well, finally what? Because they're now finally listening to the World Health Organisation. But a medical doctor, I think Dr Vernon Coleman mentions this on his uh, YouTube channel, um, but there are studies out there, if you look at how far does a sneeze travel, now the, the cloth mask that we're getting told to wear as members of the public offers zero protection. In fact, some of them on the box is saying totally unsuitable for COVID protection. You've seen these images going around, they're not conspiracies, it's fact. It's like getting a garden pee through a chain link fence. It's going to stop nothing. And a sneeze, even with one of them on, the thing, if you believe in it, being airborne, the studies show sneeze can travel up to 26 foot. 26 foot. So one foot, two foot social distancing with a mask is useless. This is it's, yeah. it's a mind control flipping. Right. Yes, people are dying. Don't get me <clears throat> wrong. And that shouldn't be minimised. But... The figures that have most recently come out from the World Health Organization, I think it was the, um, we're on the 15th, was it the 10th of June? Off the top of my head, I think the most recent figures that also allowed in honest figures of which people have pre-existing conditions. And close to, well over 85%, closer to 90% of people who died through COVID had a pre-existing yeah. condition that will class them as being high risk. And there is an argument and debate that the only reason why they died is because of the pre-existing condition. Yeah. And that to the vast majority of people on the planet, and that sadly, yes, that means there are people at risk. It does mean people are dying who wouldn't have died maybe at that time. So I'm not minimising anything, viewers or listeners. Yeah. The risk, the risk for the vast majority is no more than normal flu. And they're actually starting to admit that now. Even the bloody UK government guy, what's he called, Chris Whitty, yes. stood up and the videos there, if you go looking for it on YouTube, just type in something like, admits that COVID is incredibly low risk. He goes, he's gone through it in the past couple of weeks going, well, you know, this level of people over this you know, high risk people in these categories. And then, but then he, it reiterates for the vast majority of people, the risk is minimal. And the majority of people who will get it won't even know they've had it. Yeah. It's, and, and, and this is it, you know, like at the beginning, before lockdown, that I, I've got a brother in law who's in the forces. Uh, he thought he might have had it. Um, my father was a bit poorly that same week they'd seen him and I had a few a few nights most bizarre pain I've ever had in my life mm -hmm. heavy breathing really heavy breathing so, I was thinking in my head I, I, I was is this cycle again we were cycle is this psychosomatic I wonder if I've got COVID here but not really knowing what symptoms but I had absolute agony in my legs absolute I've broken my legs in the past you know it was the same pain as if I just had my legs snapped. Right. So I, I had about two, three sleepless nights. Um, then, it, then I was fine. <laughs> What's happened there? Absolutely fine. A bit of heavy breathing. I was okay, you know. I like to come to myself a fit enough youngish man, you know. 
So it was quite a weird one. It might not be. It might not be. I'd quite like to get that test myself to see if I've had it or not. Mm. Especially with a few people. People in these have had it and they've been tested. This is leading to a question. We haven't totally lost the plot, viewers. I, I'm leading to a question here. So, you know, if we, if we look, I, I, you might know. Um, you might not. Who knows? But before Christmas, the number of people I knew who had dry coughs, felt a bit run down, this, this, that, the other, which now, with hindsight, sounds like the description given out that people who might have it mildly and not realise or whatever, that maybe a load of people had it before Christmas. And ironically, in the past couple of weeks, because there wasn't, they, they weren't really saying that, but there is stuff out there now where they're saying that arguably it could have already been in England at yeah. sort of end of October last year. I when I was looking at it, you know, it may, this is going to make, make me sound like a bit of a pompous twit, by the way. Um, I know it all. I, yeah, in that December time, January, I can't, I'm, I've lost t- a complete time distortion, by the way. I think we all have, because every day is the same. But, yeah. But before lockdown and everything, for about four weeks before, at least a month before, I started to walk into work. Because I thought, ah, oh, better not get on the, get be getting on the buses and stuff to get to work. So I was walking in and it was really good for my health and quite enjoyable. And I was passing people because I'd seen it in China beforehand. Oh, they've done all that. I was thinking, if it's there, the world the world is so easily accessible now. It will be here. It will be here now. It just will be. And is it a killer or not? I knew it wasn't, I knew, because I've seen other, other illnesses, Ebola, in the media, I knew there's something about this that's a bit different, the fact that a government has, is looking at it in this manner, and they're hiding it on the cameras, you know, but it's become more apparent mm. that it's a bit different the way that they respond to it. So I did have that initial, is this a bigger risk than... So I'll keep it safe just to, for the time being. I've got phones in my office, so I'm working every day. And then, and then when I was had that really really weird symptoms, I was thinking, is this it? Is this COVID? Because I can't think of any other condition where there's members of families. We, the, the, what was weird about it, everybody was poorly in my family within a week, within mm-hmm. the same week. Dif- different symptoms. That's what's so peculiar about different symptoms from one, from one another. Which we now know is. Uh, my, my own father actually turned around and goes, Yeah. He, he, he didn't even hit, he hadn't heard of it, to be honest, at this point. I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I, was gonna, I thought I was going to die in the middle of the night. He actually said that. I thought I was dying. And he's never been like that. He's not a he's not hypochondriac. He doesn't have panic attacks. He's, most, he's never heard of Zen. But he's the most zen person you've ever heard. Hence the reason why he's zen, because he's never heard of it. Hell yeah, not going to worry about it. So my question, which we're leading up to then, it's relevant. Well, it's very relevant, as you'll see. The public are being 
and have been for weeks, several months now, basically on a daily basis through the television, radio, newspapers, magazines, all media channels being, it's fear, fear, uncertainty, disorientation, confusion, fear, be scared, beware this. It's all negative. I've been a victim of it myself and I know, right, the problem is that experts don't really know. I, when I look at everything, you know, I try and look at things as rationally as I can. But when you don't have the correct information out there or not enough information, it's like going, okay, what do I do? So in the initial stages, you know, I was on high alert. Stay alert. Light and fly. <laughs> and I, body goes into and, and I was, I was yeah. you know, just, just making sure, keeping everything safe. And I did follow, I followed the guidance because I thought, well, at the moment, it's not going to change anything too drastically in my life if I follow the guidance. It's better for me to do everything that I've been told at the moment. Am I conforming? Yes, I am. I recognise I am. Is it, am I falling through a massive conspiracy? I might be. I might be. But I didn't see it as a massive, massive danger for me to be following the guidelines because I thought, well, if I'm following the guidelines and it isn't as dangerous doesn't matter if it is as dangerous as they say and i'm following at least there's no victims because of my you know disregard of it but i was thinking well maybe i'm i'm following everything and i don't need to there's always that uh, dilemma there i don't know that's the only thing i can say is i don't i don't know specific here the fact is, um, and this is this to me. Forget all, there's numerous conspiracy theories out there, but a lot of them are backed with evidence. The fact is, there is uh, the Rockefeller Foundation do have a document on their website, um, "Plan for a New World," um, which details within it, and it's been out in print. Anyone can get it freely from the website. It has been there for several years, and it clearly says that by 2030 they've got to achieve sustainable goals in the world for depopulation and it mentions 2020 as being a likely year for a pandemic very coincidental but let's not go down that route what i'd find the most biggest red light that something's not right and at the very least they've had this could be a real genuine problem yes people are genuinely dying it, it may have happened naturally, let's say, and they've just decided this is their opportunity to harness it to their advantage. But the big red light to me is this. Why are we being confronted only with fear, 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 uh, warnings, 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 which put people naturally into the fight or flight freeze bodily response, which produces more things like cortisol and adrenaline and all that in the body naturally, which makes your immune system weaker. Yeah. Why haven't they, amongst the messages in the media, been telling people, you know, use some mindfulness or self-hypnosis or relaxation exercises, to which will help your body's immune system increase? You know, take... Um, vitamins or vitamins depending where you're listening more vitamin C and stuff because now there's some countries have come out and blatantly said you know vitamin C take it, it it's you know for people they're giving that as part of the treatment to people who get it why the hell 
they're not I, I, to do things. That I, I agree with you. I, I I listen to lots of different podcasts, and what you say, uh, you probably you know Joe Rogan experienced podcasts. Mm-hmm. He talks about this. You know, um, the fact is people people aren't getting the correct information. Basically, that if you actually are taking the right vitamins or vitamins, as they call them in America. Mm-hmm. You're taking the correct vitamins, vitamin D, C, the rest of it, and you're looking after your health and mental health, especially that you will, be, you will be asymptomatic apparently, more so. And um, you might, even if you do get it, you don't know that you've got it. And it's people that are completely flat. So there are people that have been overworking, they're not looking after themselves. So when they they basically getting really poorly when they catch something but that, that's the same with all illnesses i know if i'm overworked mm. i'm fatigued when when i've been working too hard my body is starts to respond to that and that surgery in my legs you know i was talking about with the boxing i start to feel pain in my joints where i've had surgery when i'm feeling flat it's really weird it's really weird so it just shows that correlation of how your body responds when you're fatigued so if you suddenly compromised with yeah. this new COVID, it's going to have a detrimental effect on you. But that's the same with all illnesses, you know. I might be in the same household as other people that get poorly. So the common cold, and I'm fine. I'm fine. I've been looking after myself. And hopefully, I'm hoping that people actually start to respect their health a bit more. Because of all of this, and realise, yeah, we've got to look after ourselves, look after our biology. This is what we walk around with each and every day. Let's respect it. Let's exercise. I'm not saying rigorous gym routines. Go walking. Get yourself moving if you can, if you can, and look after yourself. Eat. Yeah, you'll have a takeaway from time to time. But eat good stuff as well. And let's get the weight off as well. Let's make sure that we. That we're not killing ourselves in other ways because it's this has been a massive massive um example of when people are not in good health how how they can become very very poorly with yeah. you know they are susceptible to getting poor this has been the one that's been killing people and it's absolutely horrible have been victims of it and this and it's such a hard conversation to have really because they because you know people but it's bigger than covid this conversation we're having because everything we've been saying applies to all yeah. um illnesses and arguably diseases and stuff even you know even your cancer patients who, who god i feel so sorry for people who are scheduled to have treatment that have not been able to do because they're getting all the negative messages about COVID and imagine the fear state they've been flicked into. Of course, of course. And it's been, you know, it's been appalling for people to... And I think that's where therapists like us, um, listeners and viewers, can help more than perhaps has has been recognised by the conventional medical arena in that if we can help people to psychologically be calm and cope with situations and thus 
arguably and the evidence shows in the context of what we've just discussed therefore ultimately get their physiology where their immune systems boosted or at the very least it's not being depleted from what it could have been the, then they're in a better physical position to to tackle and overcome assertive 
make sure that you only work with clients that you know you can help. Mm-hmm. And also, um, be, be confident in your skills and keep on striving to help people. Uh, the, 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 there will be there will be challenges ahead, and don't be spooked by that. But just work hard. Keep on reading. Keep on reading. That's it's so important that we keep on reading and educating yourself. You don't have to go from course to course all the time because it's replicated stuff. But there's some fantastic books out there. There's fantastic material out there for people. But be interested. Be interested in what you do. Keep on learning. So we're always learning in this industry. And there are some fantastic people out there. Learn from their mistakes. Don't just go out there thinking you know it all. Learn from others' mistakes and listen. Listen to others. And also, even if you don't agree with some of the methods out there, learn it anyhow. Mm -hmm. Learn what you don't like. And then you've got a catalogue of knowing what works. Don't dismiss anything. Excellent. Tremendous. Thank you very much indeed, Daniel. Thank you, viewers and listeners. Check out the links below. And uh, I'm sure Daniel will answer any questions you've got. If you contact him, he'll point you in the right direction of one of his courses, or as I say, go and grab his book. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you on the next edition. Bye for now.